what is so cool about StockX, and one of the things that really drew me is that it changes that scenario around access, right? Suddenly someone who didn't have the hookup, didn't know the friend, didn't know which cool boutiques were getting the limited drops, can participate in a way that is very democratic. This is the Safari. The Safari is a tour around the consumer, brand, and retailing industry. And we have the great privilege here at my company, Traub, to really be exposed to many of the great minds of the industry who are forming and shaping the future of many different parts of the consumer brand and retail world. And I felt it was quite interesting for us to be able to not only learn from all of those people as we do every day, but uh, memorialize it into a podcast which could then be shared with many of our friends and clients and, and you, obviously, the listener. I'm thrilled to have Dina Bari here with me today, who she is the relatively newly minted CMO of StockX, and she's had a pretty incredible career doing marketing and heading marketing for a whole host of incredible companies. And as far as I'm concerned, she's landed at one of the coolest companies anywhere on the planet in consumer retail land. So Dina, thank you so much for joining me on the safari today. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here with you virtually. Virtually, exactly. So <laughs> you are a newly uh, a Detroit resident, right? That's where StockX is yes. born and bred. From California to Detroit. I like to, uh, to, to think about this as sort of my sneak ahead uh, conversation a little bit, because when you, when you think about the history of the sneaker wars, the sneaker industry, and then the fashion element that's been injected into it, you know, the Air Jordan 1984, Adidas, Run DMC in 1986, uh, Reebok, Pump, uh, for 179 bucks in in 1989. I mean, that's a lot of money in 1989 dollars. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1995, eBay comes on the scene and people are able to sort of to trade a little bit, and that seems to kick off. And then, boom, 2015, StockX hits the scene, yeah, and allows people to interact with this this product that is was somehow. I don't know, in the shadows, it was hidden in plain sight. This passion for sneakers was able to really erupt uh, with StockX and a few other companies that are in the same ecosystem. But, you know, the stock market of things, I think that's what you guys call it. And, you know, I'd love to hear sort of the history of StockX and through the lens of your experience as a marketer uh, and some of the experiences you've had, uh, and what caused you, therefore, to join this incredible company? And sure. let's let's start from that perspective. Yeah. Well, you know, on a personal level, starting um, starting with how I got here, my marketing career actually started in um, in footwear and with one of the brands you just mentioned at Reebok um, back in 2004. And certainly that predated, you know, online resellers. But even 15 years ago, um, and the, before that, some of those dates that you were referencing, I think sneakers always held this really magical place in the consumer's heart where 
um, yes, it's something you wear, but it represents so much more, right? It represents the passion point um, of sport, of music, as you had all of these personalities um, making athletic wear, footwear part of their statement and their personality. Um, you as a consumer can be a little bit more like them by buying the same shoe. And I think, you know, what's really fascinating, if I think back to 2004, where again, resale wasn't a thing, you know, you bought this kind of product in traditional retail, there wasn't, access really was the name of the game. If you knew somebody, if you um, had a hookup, then you were able to get the hot product. And if you didn't have that access, then you were basically boxed out. Um, And then you could only participate through that sort of very classical um, distribution expansion strategy that all great brands have, where they have like the really exciting thing at the top in limited distribution, and then a kind of variation on that theme um, as you go broader and broader to retail um, or online distribution. So what is so cool about StockX, and one of the things that really drew me is that it changes that that um, scenario around access, right? Suddenly someone who didn't have the hookup, didn't know the friend, didn't know which cool boutiques were getting the limited drops, can participate in a way that is very democratic. Um, of course, you know, price can still be an object because a lot of these products are still unaffordable to some people, but you not only have the ability to participate through the online marketplace that is StockX, you also have a really great view into the pricing. You understand where the history has been, who's willing to pay what, who's willing to sell a product at what price. Um, And I think that all gives the consumer more confidence to make their decisions. And so those are two really key tenets of, of the platform, you know, back in the, in 2015, when the business was started, I think, you know, Dan Gilbert and Josh Luber both sort of had this hypothesis around the stock market mechanic and how, sneakers were sort of the perfect commodity for this. Lots of demand, limited supply, kind of broken distribution, and an opportunity to democratize it by providing access, by providing more information, and also providing anonymity, right? This idea of, I'm a buyer. Um, Sure, I could go to eBay, but then I have to rifle through the reviews, try to decipher if this seller is legitimate or not, um, and vice versa on the sell side. Um, and here with us, that personal interpersonal piece and the risk around that is gone. It's really, you know, it doesn't matter who's on the other side of the transaction. StockX is in the middle, making sure that it is going to be authentic, that it's going to be painless for me. And then I'm going to get what I thought I was getting for the fair price um, in a delightful way. Yeah. What's interesting, I think today, it's very easy to forget that, you know, once upon a time, the access that has actually caused the birth of many of these companies. I mean, you used to work at Gilt, which in some ways you could say was um, the digital version of the sample sale. You know, mm-hmm. Moda Operandi is the digital version of a trunk show. Uh, and it hit, and before those companies arrived, you know, it was really people, you know, in New York City, for example, who maybe knew the designers or had inside access could get to a trunk show or a sample sale. And, you know, in the case of sneakers, as you said, you either you live in Los Angeles or in New York or maybe some some cool area of, of another city in America and you had access to the sneakerhead culture. And so the democratization, I guess, uh, or the distribution of that access, maybe, is something that you've now been involved with once at Gilt, now at StockX. Mm-hmm. Um, talk, talk to me about the role of these new platforms 
in the age of um, in in the age of, of retail. Yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the sort of promises of e-commerce um, that has been realized. I mean, there are many other promises. I think that we're also waiting for them to come fully to fruition. But I think this is one of the inherently beautiful things about e-commerce is that if you can get online, you suddenly have access. And I think to me, that's both very disruptive and very appealing. You know, the idea of sort of challenging the traditional way that people could participate in things and um, just kind of flipping that paradigm and allowing um, more people to participate in things that were exclusive. You know, the notion of exclusivity, I think, has changed a lot because of these platforms, because of the access that that digital technologies provide and because of the disruptive platforms like StockX. So to me, you know, I think that's one of the most exciting things about our company and about working in this space is that, you know, retail when you think about traditional retail, which I love, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm pro retail, but I think it's hard to disrupt the model, right? It's hard to really present a radically different solution to a problem statement. And there have been some, some concepts, right? Like if you think about story in New York city, which is a, a great boutique, I don't know, actually, if it's still around, but it was when I was there and, and the concept was, it's a retail experience that's built around a narrative, right? Um, so a theme editorial um, drives the shopping. So that's one one of the few examples I can think of. Maybe shop in shops, like a Nordstrom um, buying small startups and bringing those experiences into the department store. But aside from those kinds of examples, it's tough to think of true disruption and innovation um, in a traditional retail environment. So obviously, e-commerce allows for a lot more opportunity. I think, you know, as a person who is um, sort of, I don't, I don't want to say anti-establishment, but I am sort of a challenger personality. So being able to um, join brands and businesses like these ones that um, that do allow everyone to, to challenge the paradigm makes it just a little more fun. Yeah, what, what I love about the term that you guys uh, speak of, the stock market of things, because obviously you started with sneakers and now you've gone broader into areas of fashion, accessories, collectibles, uh, even, you know, uh, elements of a crossover into the art world. I think it's interesting to try and understand almost the this this environment where people might be able to put things up that had no intention of selling those items, but they're willing and, uh, and desirous of understanding their value through the eyes of the marketplace. And if, if someone gives them a big enough bid, maybe they'll bite, but they're not necessarily for sale. Um, it also makes me think about you know the crypto world and about this in this whole feeling of the ability of securitizing pretty much anything mm-hmm. through cryptocurrency or blockchain, which is obviously not what you're doing, but I guess there's a potential for that to be a crossover. But tell me um, a little bit about this, sort of the directional energy behind the stock market of things from where you are and, and maybe where you're going under that heading. Yeah, I mean, I think, again, like the idea, the genesis was like any category product category that is coveted and that in which supply is outstripped by demand is a good candidate for the stock market of things. Right. I think fundamentally that that's what makes something a good possible um, category product category to be um, on stack X. I think the thing with sneakers um, is that there was already this culture of following the calendar and um, trying to get a hold of these 
very limited products and sort of this wave, cultural wave around who's wearing it, why is something cool, um, is it worth some ridiculous premium because of some personality that got involved or a player that wore a certain silhouette in a game or what have you. So I think that um, that sort of built-in volatility around the um, the pricing of these sneakers made it especially, you know, there was, that was already there, but the system didn't have any good tools for people to um, improve their decision-making. So I think one of the things that like you mentioned almost this casual, oh, let me see, let me post something to sell and, and see if it's, if there's any interesting demand. Um, that is actually not something that we support. The way our system is set up, we're really trying to preserve the integrity of the experience on both sides. So that means... Both sides, exactly, yeah. Yeah, you put something up to sell and I'm interested and I'm going to buy it. And we need to make sure as that sort of broker in the middle, we need to make sure that that trade is um, fulfilled. And that you, that, you know, the buyer doesn't have a bad experience. And so that makes it a little bit more challenging, right? It's not just a intellectual curiosity thing that I want to follow. It's actually a, a deal that I'm signing up to, to make. Um, and so as that arbiter in the middle, we have to make sure that both sides are holding up to their part of the bargain and behaving well. Yeah, that makes that makes absolute sense from a commercial perspective. I, I guess what be what's quite fun is the concept of, you know, there are certain pieces that, for example, live in a museum uh, today, which we all know that we, we, we use the term priceless, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but um, some, of, some of the things that fascinate me around uh, StockX and other platforms, and again, indeed, what I was talking about regarding crypto and, 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 uh, and um, other digital me- mechanisms for valuing uh, items that are just in the world, including real estate, by the way, is that an item could be in the StockX, let's call it museum. Uh, and, you know, it's a curiosity. It's, a, it, it's probably not for sale, but it's an item that is, you know, there. So anyway, right. I, I, I go off reservation a little bit. So forgive no, me but on it, that. It's actually something that comes up a lot. People do love to hear the trivia. Tell us about yeah. the most, you know, superlative thing. Um, and the beauty of our system, because we have all that pricing history and trading history, is that it's there. If you are just curious, right, you can go in. In fact, I was just doing this, um, you know, fun, fun quarantine fact is that I was um, watching the Back to the Future movies with my three kids um, one of these weekends. And then, of course, that led to the discussion around the Air Mag, the shoe that that um, yeah. that was worn in, in the second movie. And then, of course, we had to go look it up on StockX to see that it has indeed sold on StockX for $35,000, the most expensive shoe ever to have sold on StockX. So, you know, and that was not recent. It was years ago, but it, that's a good example of what you're talking about. It's sort of yes. that digital museum, um, the breadcrumb trail. Yeah, it's, 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 it's in, in the fi- in financial world. I mean, if we're talking about the stock market of things, we can continue with the, with the, with the financial sort of uh, lingo. It's sort of a comp, as they say in finance, right? Compa- comparable trading multiples. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, 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 uh, company was sold five years ago and it traded at this multiple and for this amount of money. And so you're able to, to do exactly what I'm saying by showing the historical comps, which I think is just yep. such a great and, and fun uh, experience, actually. I think that experience is something that is, that is intangible. As, as I um, was referencing before we, we started, 
Um, you know, I interviewed the CEO of one of the largest uh, American auction houses um, called uh, the Doyle Galleries. And Doyle is in the, mainly in the art world, but also in collectibles, but uh, home furnishings, etc. And she was talking about the experience of auction. And now not your variation on, on auction, but nonetheless, it's people, you know, you're, you're a clearing house for, for a trade, right? So yeah. that's what an auction house is too. Uh, though you provide more dynamic and maybe sort of um, on, you know, changing and dynamic pricing through time, I guess, versus through at a moment in time. And I think what she was saying is that the, the, the excitement, the experience, which is a buzzword that the whole industry has been begging for, every retailer is saying, how do I get more experience into my world? You're providing this, um, it's kind of a show, right? You don't know who you're bidding against. You are mm-hmm. there definitely, you don't know who you're, you're bidding from. Uh, but it creates that competitive tension, which is palpable. And what, is, what do your customers say about it? How do, they, how do they deem the brand? When you think of the StockX brand, what is, how does it resonate with your customers? Who is your customer? How yeah. old are they? What are they thinking when they interact with you? Well, I think, um, you know, that has changed quite a bit, right? Because we um, have just grown astronomically um, since the inception of the company. And so I think we started out with a customer that fit very classically into a prototype or, you know, it's the sneakerhead. It's the, um, the early adopter. It's the person who lives by the trends, um, is always first, is always leading and influencing others. And that's where we started. And that group remains a really key element of our base. You know, it's someone that we are very loyal to, obviously, because they helped us become who we are. It's also, um, I think, the group that we feel we really need to stay authentically connected to because, you know, they do set the tone, I think, for the broader, um, the, the next, the follow-on audiences. And those customers are kind of what you would imagine a little bit more urban, you know, younger. We're seeing as we start to get to know Gen Z better and better, we're seeing the, the um, adoption of the term sneakerhead actually in a really interesting way. I think today the latest stats are that over 60% of Gen Z consider themselves sneakerheads, which is just crazy if you think about it, right? Um, what percentage did you say? Over 60%. Wow. I mean, that's, that's a lot. You know, what's interesting is that we have become like the, the site of record or the um, reference site of record for, for that generation of sneakerheads. And so what I think is happening um, is that it's not just that we are crossing over from that early adopter to a more mass audience, but I think sneakerheadism, right? The notion of like sneakers being a part, a key part of your wardrobe of your identity is crossing over. And you see that in pop culture, you see that in fashion, you see that in sports, you see it everywhere. And so I think what's happening as a result of that, as sneakerhead culture is sort of crossing over and becoming more widely accepted and embraced is that we're also benefiting from that. So, you know, we are seeing a big diversification of of the customer base. Um, we still have, like I said, that core um, urban kind of trend setting person, but we also have, you know, we're global now. So we have customers in almost 200 countries. 
we see all kinds of demographic um, data. You know, it could be the suburban mom or dad. It could be the, um, we're seeing, again, that Gen Z, um, that kind of like younger, maybe they're not even funding their own purchases, but they're definitely thinking a lot about us and and the products that we sell. So I think um, even in the short time that I've been here, I've seen just that these like step function changes in terms of where we sit in the broader consciousness and uh, what kind of customers would even think about us, which is really exciting. I think well, in the end, because of that stock market mechanic, it is more about people who want to participate in something at the right price and have more control over their purchase and less about the customer needing to be super obsessed about a sneaker. So while you started at a brand, obviously at Reebok, you did work, as I discussed earlier, at Gilt, and and then you were the Birchbox CMO, so I would call these sort of digital native companies. And then obviously you're you're now at StockX, and so you've lived within the ecosystem of the incumbent, uh, sorry, the contender platforms. Um, Mm -hmm. Then you have this sort of incumbent universe of retailers. You've got people like, um, you know, Neiman Marcus and, and Farfetch, uh, investing and buying uh, companies in the space, uh, Foot Locker buying or investing in companies in uh-huh. the space. What is your take on the convergence of old and new, of um, maybe old and new is an unfair way of putting it, but sort of the contenders and the incumbents? And w- is, is there a line anymore or does it all become sort of one one ecosystem? You know, we've always hypothesized that it was going to blur and become one. I think what's quite interesting is that just over the last six weeks with um, COVID-19 and the reality of the impact on physical retail, I think we've seen an acceleration of some of that convergence. It's just astonishing to see, um, you know, the e-commerce data in April. It's, you know, just kind of across the industry, companies are having record months. while the retail giants are in every headline, you know, struggling, whether it's store closures or furloughing employees. And so you just see that, that dichotomy, which is, I think, the convergence at the same time, because it's customers realizing that, you know, they need to, they, they want, need isn't the right word, but they want to get their, their consumables and they're going to turn to whatever channel is able to stay with them through these different times. Um, I think when retail had the sort of like hard closures that happened through March, we started to see a shift in behaviors. Our sellers, you know, as a two-sided marketplace, you know, we have these sellers who operate small businesses on our site or large businesses, some of them. Um, And we started to see changes in their behavior because there was this pattern of, okay, it's a drop day. I go to retail. I pick up my shoe. I ship it out to my buyer on StockX. Um, And some of those sort of very predictable patterns started to change because there was no retail outlet to go pick up that pair of shoe. We've also just had really interesting conversations with um, the supply side, with with brands over these past weeks where they are realizing that um, their retail supply chain is very challenged. Even their owned supply chain is very challenged. um, And we represent a door that remains open. And so, you know, I think, I think it's really quite interesting. It's not just in our business, obviously in the way that we're working right now, I think this period has just accelerated a bunch of change that was a long time coming and now seems to have suddenly arrived. So it's exciting for us, you know, bringing it back to your question. I think the idea of obviously 
today our the lion's share of our business, um, almost all of our business is secondary, you know, resale, but we believe that primary is a big opportunity for us down the road. And um, just based on what we've observed over the last six weeks, it seems like that may be sooner than anticipated. So as the CMO of this incredible company, what hand do you have um, or intention maybe is the word uh, of being able to have a hand in creating some of the mashups that might interest you guys? So for example, you know what your consumer is searching for. You know that they on the one hand love, uh, you know, Palace Skate from the UK, but they also love, you know, pick a brand uh, and that you therefore approach the company and say, hey guys, you you got you know, act as matchmaker for a collaboration for a mashup. Uh, do you get, dabble in that? Is that something for the future? Because obviously, all, all you're seeing and reading about today is 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 exactly collaborations and mashups. Absolutely, a- yeah. I think um, <clears throat> collaborations around product creation is something that's part of our sort of innovation engine. We have a small internal innovation engine. Um, who's focused on that and they work really closely with the cultural marketing team to do exactly what you're talking about, which is figure out what are the passion points for consumers, which are the brands that are on the bleeding edge of that. And then um, how can we bring them together on our platform, whether it's through creating new product or, you know, it even may be something like um, currently we have a charity campaign on our site to benefit the world health organization. We've brought together, um, influencers, celebrities, and brands from across the world to donate product. Um, so sometimes it's product creation and sometimes it's just kind of rallying around existing products um, in the name of a campaign or a charity fundraiser. So so it's definitely something that is top of mind for us. I think um, we are constantly trying to innovate. Um, we haven't done a whole lot of the product creation side, but we do see an opportunity there. We are actually unveiling a really awesome partnership between one of the major footwear brands and a very influential um, design collective called um, No Vacancy In. So it's basically New Balance and No Vacancy In are launching product together exclusively on StockX through an IPO. So this is an example of one of those collaborations. You know, New Balance. Did, did you just call it an IPO of a product? Is that what you just called it? Yeah, exactly. That's something that we have coined kind of, you know, not really, but, but we use I love it. I think it's cool. As a term um, for bringing product direct. So it's primary sale of product from a brand yeah. um, to the market on our platform. And we've so done it's initial, it. It's initial product offering versus Correct. initial public offering. I love exactly. it. That's, you know I've, le- I've, learned, I've learned two things today. One is the term IPO uh, in this context, but you also co- talked about cultural marketing team, yeah. which is a term that I've never heard before. So, mm-hmm. I mean, I think it speaks for itself, but it's, if I'm not mistaken, um, it's it's a team that really thinks about the zeitgeist of what's happening this month or this week and That's trying right. to move with it as quickly as possible. Is that something that was there before you arrived? Is that I've never heard it before. So I mean, I know yeah. I, I, I talk about it, but I've never given it a name. Mm-hmm. So I'm fascinated that you have. I mean, it's the first time I've heard cultural yeah. marketing. So this team has existed before I came along and, and they've done a lot of great work. It was called something else. We sort of just recently rebranded it for a number of reasons. But one of them is that I, I do think it, it, is, it was misunderstood. So this is a team that drives brand partnerships, influencer marketing, events. And in an environment like ours that is today very focused on growing, moving from kind of hyper growth into this sustainable long-term growth I think teams 
that are not rooted in, um, you know, the OKRs of the business and, and ROI are, um, are at risk. And so as I was, you know, coming in and looking at the organization and opportunities to make sure that everyone is really aligned and rallied around the goals and, and the kind of two-year, three-year plan for the business, I just saw an opportunity to take the great work this team has been doing and just kind of rewrap it in exactly what you said. I mean, the purpose of this team is to to create deep connections between our brand and the customer by storytelling in culturally relevant ways. So it's brand partners, it's personalities, it's events, but the reason is to be culturally relevant and, and connect with consumers over that cultural relevance. So it's, it's a well-known type of marketing, but we sort of branded it in our very own way. Yeah. I, I think it's so important. And, you know, we, we try and um, talk about it to our companies and our, in our ecosystem about, you know, in some way being your own influencer, you know, mm-hmm. it's not about necessarily relying on, you know, other third parties anymore. It's about you coming up with the creative, the creative ideas that others will then latch onto versus right. you latching onto theirs. Um, so, you know, when it comes down to YouTube, for example, you know, the idea of everyone having a, their own production uh, outfit within their brands, within their companies, so that they can communicate uh, as fulsomely as possible. So um, I think that's a wonderful narrative. So listen, I have a feeling that I could go on speaking to you for at least two hours, but I, I try to keep this uh, as, as tight as possible for everyone's sake on, on, on the other end of this. So I really have enjoyed speaking to you. Could you sort of, as I love to give my guests the last word to either talk a little bit about or, or both something that's upcoming, which I think you've already alluded to something that you're excited about that you want to talk about. So giving you the last word from a, a brand marketing perspective, but also, you know, um, more spiritually, maybe also, what, what are you excited about? How do you feel about the industry? You know, it, it, the mic is yours and then, then we'll say goodbye. Okay. <laughs> well, um, thank you. You know, I, I think one of the things that excites me, obviously we're going through an unprecedented time and it's easy to just be stuck in all the things that feel different from the life we were used to and all the challenges presented. But I think actually there are as many, if not more silver linings and opportunities. And I think that has been extremely exciting to me. And I'll give you some examples, you know, the way that our marketing team and our business has adapted to the constraints and come up with new ways of marketing when we are kind of stuck at home, you know, don't have access to studios, don't have the ability to interview people, you know, we've just been able to be really creative and find opportunities for shifting all of our energy that was directed towards in-person activity and bring it online and create new partnerships and new ways of creating content. And that to me, that ability to adapt in a constraining environment and, and be not just flexible, but even more creative is really exciting because it, it helps me really see how much the team has to give and how much, um, in a company um, where things are always changing, people will adapt and land on their feet and come up with something new and astonishing. So that's been really exciting. Another thing on the back of that is just the ability to jump on opportunities to give back, you know, while we're all stuck at home and worrying about what's happening, I think saying as marketers, like, what can we do to help and being able to raise money through um, 
engaging charity campaigns has been has felt extremely rewarding and like a really logical pivot. Um, and we've spent a lot of energy on that over the past six, eight weeks. And then as I think longer term, you know, this convergence that we talked about, this shift, um, obviously as a 15-year veteran in e-commerce, I really believe in e-commerce as the way. But I think this time that we've all had at home has just accelerated the adoption and is sort of, you know, going to supercharge the changes and the convergence of, of markets and the opportunity for StockX. So um, I just, I look ahead and I just see so much great opportunity. Um, and I know that we're going to come through this kind of season at home um, with a lot of creativity, energy, and opportunity. Well, energy, opportunity, and I think you said the words earlier, landing on our feet, which is also mm-hmm. something I hope we all do. Yes. Dina Bari, thank <laughs> you so much for joining me on the safari. Thank you. It was great to be here. All right. Thank you, Dina. If you want to learn a little bit more about Traub, you can go to traub.io, where you'll learn a lot about everything that we do. If you're enjoying the safari, please do share it with your friends and colleagues within the industry. And please also don't forget to subscribe and like it. Until next time.